Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, we started looking at this last week and saw that it's a, a song or a poem about, well, two things. Some have called it God's two books. Francis Bacon said that in the 15th century, that Psalm 19 includes two books. Verses 1 through 6, which we saw last week, is a book of pictures, you could say. Stars and all of creation. Verses 7 and following have a different book. It's a literal book. It's God's Word. So we said last week that Psalm 19 is about stars and Scripture, or it's about God's world and God's Word. We looked at the first last week, and we'll look at the second half this week on Scripture. Now, we said this last week, it's worth repeating again. Remember, there are two primary ways in which God has chosen to reveal himself. There are important similarities. One of those would be that they both reveal God, right? It's part of his plan of revealing, showing, demonstrating, declaring. Both are important. But they're not important and they don't reveal in quite the same way. There are important differences between the world and the word or between creation and scripture. Creation tells us that there's a God, that he's there, that he created, and hence he's powerful and he's good. He's artistic. He's creative, we could say. He's involved in his world, what he made. He still sustains it. Tells us that he's the Lord. But that's about it. That's about all that creation can tell us. It certainly has its limits. One plus is that creation reaches the whole world. So it's something we talked about last week. The revelation of God in creation is not limited by language, it's not limited by time or place or culture. Everyone gets it who's in this world. But creation, we said last week, is not enough to save us. It's actually enough only to condemn us. That's the sad part of the first half of Psalm 19. It's enough information for us to have no excuse. And none of us have done well with the amount of information God has shown us in creation. None of us have. That's why all are guilty, whether they've heard of the gospel or not. And that's why the gospel has to go forth. There has to be more than just a tree for them to look at, just just a star for them to stare at. They need a savior to see and embrace. Scripture, then, is black and white. It's clear. And scripture unfolds the story of redemption. Now we could say, how do you know about Jesus? How have you heard the gospel? And for most of us, we can trace that through a person or perhaps through a pastor. Some of us got it directly from the Bible. We found a Bible, we opened it one day, we started reading it, and this man we read about in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, stood out and how it it spoke to us. God's word spoke to us and we believed it. 
But whether that's your story or you got the gospel from a person, really, let's be honest, we all got it from God's word. That's why the gospel is here in Albuquerque. That's why it's here in, in the United States. That's why it's on that continent, in this continent. Someone knows to say it to you. Someone knows to take it somewhere because God's word says so. Scripture unfolds the story that culminates in Jesus and the cross and the gospel. And according to Hebrews, that's a better thing. It's a better thing than anything. So let's read Psalm 19. We'll read the whole thing so we can remember what we saw last week and then see how it builds into this theme of Scripture this week. A Psalm of David says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. There's the first book, a book of pictures. Then the book of words. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's God's word. C.S. Lewis said of the second half of Psalm 19... I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Let me give you another motivation, not just Lewis, but another motivation still for our study of Psalm 19 this morning. Remember a few weeks ago we were looking at Psalm 16, the last verse of Psalm 16. It's verse 11. It says, In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. A few weeks ago, we saw that call to seek his presence for our own joy and for his glory. And we asked the question then, where do we go to get his presence? Where do we go to see him? Where do we go to get him, get hold of him? Where has he revealed himself? We said, well, he's revealed himself everywhere. We saw that last week, that his fingerprint is on everything in his his creation. One day... It will be not just a fingerprint. 
In the new heaven and the new earth, we're told in Revelation, there'll be no need for the sun because his glory will be the sun. His glory will illuminate everything. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what it looks like. I just know that's big when we don't need the sun anymore and when the glory of the S-U-N is replaced by the glory of the S-O-N. Until then, he's given us his spirit. As Christians, we have the spirit dwelling within us. And we also have his presence in corporate worship. We talked about that, that week of Psalm 16. We talked about how he meets with us in a special way when we come together like we're doing right now. We also said that he reveals himself in a special way in his word. His word is not just an old book. It's something of a fresh communication. It's living and active, Hebrews 4 tells us. God shows himself to us in his word, and we commune with him through his word and prayer. So the second half of Psalm 19 is something about a love song, something of a love song about God's word. And as we go to it this morning, as we dig into it this morning, we should remember that promise from Psalm 1611, that it's in his presence that there's fullness of joy. We've come, we've come into his presence this morning, and now we come even more so into his word where he reveals himself. We hear again the invitation of Psalm 1611, that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Let's see how. I think we can see how by asking four questions of the second half of Psalm 19. The first would be this, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? The answer is found in verses 7 through 9. One way we could answer what is the Bible is to say it's the word of God. That might for Christians sound redundant, but but it's not. That's not a given, especially in secular culture. But the Word of God, the Bible says it's the Word of God. The Bible claims that it's of the Lord. Notice verse 7 twice, verse 8 twice, and verse 9 twice refer to something of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. That's a lot of, a lot of emphasis here, isn't it? Six times in three verses, it's of the Lord. Again, it's not an archaic, sloppy, chaotically assembled book of religious thoughts and stories. But neither is it just an accurate and true communication about God. It is the word of the Lord. It's his word. Notice verses 7 through 9, there are several different words used for Scripture. Law, then testimony, precepts, commandment, rules. Now, especially with this word law, that could be referring to the first five books of our Old Testament, sometimes called the Law of Moses or the Books of Moses. Law, sometimes in the Old Testament, oftentimes in the Old Testament, has to do with those first five 
books. But I'm convinced in Psalm 19 and also in Psalm 119, which is like Psalm 19 on steroids. It's just the bigger Bible version of Psalm 19. In both Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, the words used there of Scripture are used of Scripture as a whole. So law doesn't just mean law. Law means law like just God said so, what God said. Thus, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 apply to the New Testament as well, even though they were written hundreds of years before the New Testament came to be. Because whatever Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 say about God's words, it applies to all of God's words, even the ones that would come to be later on, which we know now to be to the New Testament. So each scripture term in Psalm 19 has its own little purpose, but it also, notice, has a descriptive word to go along with it. You have several nouns used for scripture, and then you have several adjectives in verses 7 through 9. So let's put those together. Verse 7, it says that God's word is the perfect law. The Bible is The perfect law, the law of the Lord is perfect. You can assess it if you want, but it is perfect, it says. It's his law, it's what he said. We see it's also a true or sure testimony. End of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's not just a book of rules which law or commandments might seem to imply. It's also a testimony of him. Stories are a testimony of him and his ways in this world. What he says of himself is a testimony of him, and it's sure. The Bible has right precepts, according to verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, right, dependable, known, and unchanging. One Old Testament scholar gives us a helpful comment on how this part of Psalm 19 stands out among the pagan religions that were surrounding Israel at the time. Let me give you kind of a lengthy quote here. Put on your thinking cap. This is good. It's worth seeing the context around Israel in these days and how Psalm 19 is so unique compared to those around them. It says, One of the most difficult aspects of pagan, polytheistic religion in ancient Near East was the lack of assurance about what the god or gods demanded. As the myths from Egypt to Mesopotamia illustrate, the gods were notoriously changeable and could manipulate, trick, and overpower one another. Thus humans could never be certain which God would rule at the moment, or what exactly that God might demand. Consequently, there were certain protocols governing human behavior in relation to the gods. The demands of the gods could change from one situation to another. The matter was complicated further by the lack of any moral superiority to humans among the gods. In other words, the gods were not morally better than people. The ancient gods of polytheism operated with just a twisted 
with just as twisted a moral standard as humans. They lied, cheated, stole. They were sexually promiscuous and generally outdid their human servants with their lack of consistent morality. They were distinguished from humans by only two major characteristics. They were powerful and they lived forever. Therefore, whatever the gods demanded had to be obeyed because they had the power to make human existence miserable and there was no hope of outliving them. You hear this repetition in Psalm 19 ringing out such a distinct bell in that kind of world, that kind of culture. This word is known. This God has communicated. This God's word is true and right. It is perfect. And it's unchanging. It's a true testimony. There are right precepts. There are pure commands. The commandment of the Lord is pure. This word pure here can mean clear. In theology, we call this the doctrine of perspicuity. There's a $2 word for you to throw, throw around the next party you're at. Perspicuity. It means the word is clear. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things in Scripture which are difficult to understand. The Bible even says there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand, hard to interpret, even hard to put together, or even more so, perhaps hard to believe. What the clarity of Scripture means, though, is that the Bible has plain things as the main things, and the main things as the plain things. You get that? The main things in Scripture are plain The plain things in Scripture are the main things. God's word is clear or pure. They are true and righteous rules, according to verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Again, you can hear this being such a slap in the face of the gods in ancient Near East. God's ways are true. They are righteous. Altogether meaning unchangeably. So how do we know that the Bible is what it says that it is? How do we know the Bible is the perfect, true, right, pure word of God? Well, there are a number of ways to answer that kind of question. One attempt at answering that question is something we did years ago, well, probably seven years ago now, but it's still on the web and available for you to listen to if you can bear it. We have six hours of audio that I taught on the reliability of the Bible. Go listen to that if you really have questions, tough questions about the historicity of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible. There are some good reasons to believe that the Bible is true, and it's more than just a human book. It's more than just a compilation of different thoughts. So I won't go there this morning. There are other books on that as well, which we'd be glad to point you to if you really want to study that in more depth. Let me instead this morning give you a different kind of answer to that question, how do we know the Bible is true and pure and right and that it is the Word of God? One of the ways we know that it's all those things has to be that the Bible tells us that it is and our experience has confirmed it. Now, I know that doesn't hold up to a skeptic. That doesn't hold up to say 
We believe the Bible is true because the Bible says that it's true and it feels true to me. But the Bible says that that's one of the ways we know. We call it the self-authentication of the Bible. The Bible verifies itself. Why that's important is because there's no higher standard. Math is not a higher standard. Logic is not a higher standard. Papyri documents 2,000 years old are not a higher standard. You can't trump God's word. God's word is his word. And so we should, at times, embrace the fact that the Bible verifies itself. Charles Spurgeon had a great word picture for this. He said, Scripture is like a caged lion. He said, I defend the truthfulness of the Bible the same way that I would defend a caged lion. I don't need to defend the lion to prove to others that he is a lion. I simply need to let the lion out of its cage. You know then, right? So here's a test. If you're a skeptic and you don't like my, my comment or the Bible's comment, better yet, that the Bible verifies itself, why don't you take up the challenge? Why don't you read it? Uh, most skeptics I've ever come across haven't read the Bible that they think is so weird and odd. They've seen some quotes, perhaps on the web or in a book here or there. But... If you don't think the scripture is a lion, take it out and play with it and see for yourself. You might think differently. What is the Bible is the first question. The second question we should ask Psalm 19 is, what does the Bible do? What's the Bible do? Right there in those verses we've already looked at, 7 through 9, we have this question answered right alongside. Verses 7 to 9 give us, Several statements about what Scripture does. First, it revives. Verse 7, it revives the soul. This could mean that it converts the soul. It has the idea of turning. It turns us around. It makes wise, it says, verse 7. Making wise, notice that it says making wise the simple. It doesn't say making wise the wise. Because it's important that we come to God's word Humble, teachable, ready to hear. For those who come to God's word thinking that they're over it, they're better than it, well, it doesn't make you wise. You won't be interested in it, but it makes wise the simple. It makes wise those who recognize that they aren't wise in God's eyes. The Bible also rejoices according to verse 8. It's rejoicing the heart. We need that, right? We need to cling to that as a promise. When our soul is downcast, we need God's word to rejoice the heart. I don't know about you, but I know my temptation is to look for joy in rejoicing, to look for reviving or even turning, getting me to turn over. I look for that to happen in other things. Have you ever thought you'd feel better if you got something new? Ever thought that you'd feel better if you went shopping? Oh, I know that that's probably a temptation for ladies more than men, but I, I will assign myself with the ladies here. I've done that. I've thought, 
Yeah, I'll feel better after I go click, click, click on the web and it comes, comes, comes in the mail. We need to turn to God's word and to find our joy in rejoicing in God's truth, not in distractions. It says that God's word enlightens. It enlightens the eyes, according to verse 8. Probably a play on words here. That it enlightens the mind and that it lightens up the countenance. It brings a radiance. It helps us to know differently and it even helps us to look differently. And it produces, according to verse 9, godly fear. It says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. There's all kinds of fear out there that isn't clean. It's not right. It's not healthy. It's complicated. It has cobwebs, strings attached, problems that come along. This fear is the right kind of fear. It's the fear the Lord gives when we know who we are, we know who he is. Even once we're forgiven in Christ, once we're redeemed by the work of the Savior, we're still called to have this godly fear where we awe and wonder and in joyful trembling we worship the God who made us, who speaks to us, who saved us, who was raised for us and will come again. That kind of fear is good fear, it's clean fear, it's godly fear, and notice, it endures forever. What emotions endure forever? Well, I know even here and now in this world, even as redeemed sinners, we still have our ups and downs. Sometimes we fear him appropriately more than others. But one day, we will have clean fear of the Lord which endures forever. That's what God's word does. Third question we can ask it is, how should we approach it? How should we approach God's word then? Well, verse 10 tells us. Verse 10 gives us two different word pictures. One, the scripture is like gold. The other, scripture is like honey. Now, there are other word pictures in the Bible about Scripture. The Bible says of itself in different places that it's food. It says that it's water. It says that it's milk. It says that it's meat. It says that it's fire. God says that his word is like a hammer. Hebrews 4 says God's word is a sword. We're told that his word is also like a balm that heals. We're told in Psalm 119 that his word is like a lamp. It's a light unto our path. We're told in the Gospels God's word is like a seed which does this work and we don't actually see it. Just like a farmer throws a seed into the ground, he doesn't know what's happening to it, right? He he didn't do anything to the seed other than put it in the ground. He didn't hardwire the insides of the seed to get it to germinate. What does he do? He throws it into the ground. And Jesus says of that, he doesn't know how it happens. Oh, maybe today farmers know more than farmers back then. But still, really, we don't know how it happens. Really, we didn't do anything. 
God's word is like a seed. It's like a mirror which shows us us, shows us what's off, what's wrong, what's hanging out, what needs fixing. So, with all these pictures in mind, especially the gold and the honey, we should prize it. Verse 10 says, desire it more than gold, more than much fine gold. Boy, now this is a nice claim, isn't it? It's a nice poetic word picture. But do we believe it? Let's test ourselves here. Would you take a stack of gold bars worth millions, and you can sell it right now. Gold's at a premium price, isn't it? Would you take a stack of gold bars if you have to give up all Bible until you go to heaven? Let's just say in this scenario, this test, you still get to go to heaven. You won't get in trouble when you get there for having picked gold over Bible. Okay, so let's just remove that because that'd be an easy out. Oh, no, no, I know not to do that because, boy, I'll get it when I get there, right? And I won't have the gold with me. I know that. No, you won't get in trouble when you get there for having chosen the gold. Let's imagine there's no ridicule here on earth among your fellow Christians. Let's say that no one knows that you've made this deal. Let's suppose you can keep your Christian music, just not your psalterium because that's pretty much Bible. And you can still have church as long as you take out the Bible stuff. You can still have fellowship. You can still have doing stuff. You can still have coming. You can still have identity. But no Bible. Would you take it? Could you make it? I hope so. I hope you have come to love God's word and lean on God's word in such a way that your experience tells you those would be rich, yet sad, hard, miserable, tear-filled years. And you need it more at the end, perhaps, than you did at the beginning. Prize it. Prize it more than much fine gold. Seek it. Seek it. If it's better than gold, then a clear implication is that we won't just prize it, but we'll actually seek it. It's not theoretical. It's actually ours for the having. You can have a Bible. If you don't have one, we'd be glad to give you one today. Go to the Welcome Center. Tell them I said, give you a Bible. They'll give you a Bible. Don't just prize it. Seek it. Don't just have one. Read it. So here's another test. If you're like me, perhaps you wouldn't take the gold deal, a stack of gold bars to hand off all your Bibles. But do you use the Bible like you prize it more than gold? Do you use it like it's worth that much? Do you seek it? Do you taste it? It says it's sweeter than honey, dripping right off the honeycomb. When we say things like taste it, it sounds like a quick thing, a temporary thing. It might even sound like a suspicious thing. When people say to me, hey, taste this, (laughs) I don't know. 
I don't think I like your tuna casserole, okay? I don't know if it needs more relish, okay? So we shouldn't think of this tasting of the honey like something like that. When David says that God's word is like honey, he's speaking of its powerful sweetness. I didn't check with my wife before I thought of this just now, but if I'm not mistaken, isn't honey much more powerfully sweet than refined sugar? Yes? You have to back down the honey in the recipe if you're using honey instead of sugar. I'm hypoglycemic, so I know those kind of things. Um, Not that I make my desserts, but my wife makes some desserts with honey in them. And I, from what I understand, it's powerfully sweet. God's word is powerfully sweet. We need to keep going to it. We need to we need to sprinkle it over everything. Now, before we go any further, I want to stop here and get real practical. I want to talk about the role of the Bible in the life of the Christian. Because Bible reading, Bible intake, is a root thing for the Christian life. It's a root thing. Following Jesus, being a disciple, being a Christian is not summed up totally with Bible reading, right? We know there's more to it than that. But almost everything that God tells us to do has a connection with the Bible. So it's a fair question whenever we're talking about a problem. Whenever we're trying to diagnose a problem, a problem of marriage or lust or materialism or doubt, fear, anxiety... If you come to one of the pastors here at Desert Springs and you you seek counseling, one of the first questions we're going to ask about any one of those kind of problems is, tell me about your Bible reading. Tell me about your Bible intake. Because in some ways, the Christian life rises or falls in accord with your Bible intake. Or at the very least, maybe that says too much, at the very least, Christian life doesn't rise very high without Bible, and the Christian life doesn't usually fall very low with Bible. Related to that, listen to these wonderful words from Moses. We all should memorize at least this last line from Deuteronomy 32, verse 46 and 47, where Moses said to the people, take to heart all the words which I'm warning you today by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no trifle for you, it is your very life. The word of God, knowing it, teaching it, living it, keeping it, it's no trifle for you, it's your very life. So if you're not hungry for it, you're not hungry for God's word. There can only be a couple of possibilities why. One is that you're not a Christian. You might think that you're a Christian, but there's this relationship between Jesus' word and having Jesus' forgiveness. Just like there's a relationship between God's people and God's work of salvation in us. So that in 1 John it says things like, if you don't love the brothers, you really don't love me. And you're really not his. So it might be that you're not a Christian. 
And that's why God's word is not alluring to you. It doesn't draw you in. It doesn't fill you up. It doesn't give you any rejoicing, strengthening. Or it could be this. It could be that you're a forgiven, redeemed Christian, and you're in a season of sickness. And in your season of sickness, you've gotten used to not eating. God, God's word uses the metaphor of food for the Bible more than any other of those metaphors. Remember I gave a list of different word pictures the Bible uses of itself, like it's a hammer that shatters a rock. Well, the food metaphors are used far more than any others. We should think about that. We should think about God's word in terms of eating and digesting and needing. And we should also remember that there are times perhaps where you have not eaten physical food, you've gotten used to it, right? I remember some years back, it was probably 15 years ago now, I had a gallbladder attack, and I had a couple of weeks before they realized what it was. All I knew is that it was seriously painful whenever I ate food or even smelled food. So I just didn't. And eventually, you have that window, if you've done any kind of fasting for a length of time, you know there's a window three, four days in where food is it's very optional. It doesn't look that good. You actually start judging people. Whopper guy, look at him. <laughs> Not me. Well, let's equate that with the eating of God's word. We need to eat even when we don't feel like it, even when it doesn't feel like it's going to nourish or satisfy. We cannot trust our instincts or our feelings about the word of God. It may be that your spiritual stomach has gotten used to so little spiritual food, you're content to keep going. Some of us have had our spiritual stomachs stapled to a much smaller size. We need very little to be sustained and to keep going. Well, don't trust your instincts, your feelings. Eat. It's similar to seeking his presence in corporate worship, isn't it? A few weeks ago, I said, almost no one leaves the faith while still being committed to meet with the church on Sunday morning. We could say the same thing about God's word. Almost no one leaves the faith while remaining committed to be in the word. With most medicines, there's a prescribed amount, right? And with those medicines, it's, it's true that you're not supposed to go over that amount. So some of you have thought about that saying, you know, if a little is good, more is going to be even better, Right? My friend Ron did that with echinacea. Is Ron here? Ron did it with echinacea. My buddy Ron had a little bit to fix a cold. Next time he got a cold, he drank a bottle of it. And his eyes shut and froze, and weird things happened for a whole day. Right? So some of you are like that. You think if a little bit is good, a lot's even better. And the rest of us know to chuckle there because we know that it isn't true with most medicines. But the Bible is not one of those kind of medicines. With the Bible, you can't take too much. You can't OD on Bible. 
Now, I suppose you can neglect good things in order to read more Bible. God doesn't want you to quit your job in order to read your Bible all day. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, assuming that we're not talking about neglecting other good and right things, this principle holds up. You can't have too much Bible. Or we could put it this way. All of us need more of it in one way or another. Not all of us the same way. So what does more Bible look like for you? Maybe it means starting. Starting with something. Starting somewhere, however small. Maybe it means finding some motivation in Psalm 119. 176 verses, I believe, on God's word and its worth and its work, its ways. Go to Psalm 119 to get charged up to read other places. Maybe for you, more Bible means more discipline, more structure, more regularity, a plan, a schedule, a time that's consistent where you do it. Remember, we're getting close to a new year. That often seems like a good time for some of us to make a fresh start with Bible reading, especially if you're going to do something like a chronological Bible or reading through the Bible in one year, and that Bible has specific dates in it. We'll make a plan for January 1 now. You have one month to go, but don't wait for January 1 to start reading your Bible. Maybe it means more straight through reading. Perhaps for years you've done some kind of devotional with a verse at the top. And that's better than nothing. But you need more than just a half of a verse or a verse a day to keep the devil away. You need to know the contours and turns in God's word. Maybe you need to move beyond seeing Bible as quiet time and need to see Bible as quiet time plus sprinkled throughout the day. Read Psalm 119 with that in mind. How many times it says, I do this all the day. I meditate on your word all the day long. You also see it in Psalm 1. The man meditates on the word of the Lord day and night. Maybe it means memorizing key verses to help you in your fight, to have a quick sword right at your hip, ready for battle. Maybe you need to grow in applying your reading of God's word. Maybe you need someone to help you understand it. Maybe you need someone to help you keep applying it. Maybe a community group would be a good thing for you if you're not in one. Maybe you need to grow in treating the word of God as communion with God because you're good about reading it, but it's very classroom It's very instructional, it's information, it's learning things you didn't know before, and then you feel as though you can go throughout your day in a clear conscience. But but we use God's word, yes, to learn of him, but to learn of him to know him. Maybe it means in this next year you'll grow in learning where to go for this comfort, for that teaching. Grow in a familiarity with God's word. Where God speaks about this. Where God confronts that. And if you think, boy, I'm doing pretty well with all those, Ryan. That was a pretty good checklist. And I went through and check, 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 check. Maybe it means you grow in blessing others with it. Grow in teaching it formally. Grow in leading your family. Grow in simply encouraging others with it. In college, I live across the hallway from a guy named CQ, and every day he printed out a a stack of Bible verses and these little pieces of paper, 
And you'd see CQ all day walk around the campus and just hand these out to people. He didn't know him. He would just hand him a Bible verse. He'd hand him a Bible verse. And he wasn't a weird guy. He was a really cool guy. Right? Because if you were picturing a weird guy, no, this was like the coolest guy on campus. Maybe look to bless others with God's word. Let's ask, lastly, what is our aim with God's word? What is the aim? We've asked, what is the Bible? What does it do? How should we approach it? Now, what is our aim? Well, there are several D's, D words, that are implied or explicit in verses 11 to 14 about the aims and goals that we should have with Scripture. The first is that we be directed. Directed. Verse 11, it says, by them your servant is warned. By them we're instructed in the way to go, warned about the consequences of not doing that, not going that way, and we're also promised. You see that at the end of verse 11. In keeping them there is great reward. Now what's that mean? It doesn't mean salvation. It doesn't mean read God's word and keep God's word and therefore God will like you. It's also not material reward. Read God's word and keep God's word and you'll be wealthy and blessed and life will be easy and you'll have health and comfort. Nope. It may not even be that there's any kind of special reward in heaven. When it says in keeping them there's great reward, I'm not sure that's referring to some sort of Bible reading crown that some of us will get when we get to heaven. I think instead what this is talking about is that this path is a hard but happy path. God's path is not just right, it's better. It's like Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And there's another reason. Do it so that it goes well with you. We sometimes discipline our kids, saying to them in the process, this is not going well for you, is it? Right? There are consequences to this. And when they get older, it'll be worse than a spanking on the, on the bottom. It, it could be a bottom in the jail cell. It won't go well with them or for them. Proverbs is loaded with that kind of reap what you sow language. That's the reward. But even more so, I think the Bible itself is a reward for us, right? Happy is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. When we're happy in the word, we're happy. We put our happiness in something that's true and right and unchanging. Look around. Everything else is shaking, shifting. It's questionable. It's optional. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It has short fulfillments, big promises, sometimes empty promises. But God's word says that it's a reward. Put your hope in that. It helps us be directed. It also causes us to have discernment. An aim of God's word is that we would discern. According to verse 12, it says, who can discern his errors? There are several different ways of answering this, but one way is no one can discern his errors. Not 
not the extent of our errors, not the extent of our sin. But one way of understanding it is to say, God's word helps us discern errors. We're not left to wonder whether this is outside of God's plan or this is what he wants for us. We go to his word to discern. We go to his word to be declared innocent according to the second half of verse 12. It says, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Ones I can't see, ones others can't see. Declare me innocent. Declare me innocent not by having earned forgiveness, but have me be declared innocent by grace. What Ron said earlier in the service is unmerited favor. God's love, God's acceptance, not because of what we've done. One way of thinking about grace is unmerited favor. Another way is to think of it as an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's righteousness for you and to you at Christ's expense. Well, the gospel is so important with this because I don't know about you, but I never feel good enough about my prayer life. Let's throw witnessing in there as well. Witnessing, praying, and Bible intake. I'm a pastor who spends, for my occupation, at least 15 hours a week studying God's word. But I still feel like I, I neglect it. Because sermon and sermon prep is not, is not the sum total of, of any kind of Christian walk with the Lord. So we need the gospel when it comes to Bible reading because the gospel is what motivates us to go to the word. It frees us and it gives us hope for our Bible neglect. Some of us have this skewed view of Bible and prayer. If we've been doing it pretty well, we feel good about doing it tomorrow. And if we've been doing it poorly, we feel like it's hypocrisy for us to go and do it today. We almost feel like we need to get something better before we can get back to Bible and prayer. Am I the only one who sometimes feels that way? Well, maybe. I feel like that sometimes. Oh, that's not the gospel speaking to us, is it? The gospel says, come, come, taste and see that he is good. Psalm 19 also tells us how to be delivered. Verse 13, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them, not have, let them not have dominion over me. Can I just say here, this is a massively neglected area of prayer. When is the last time you prayed for the Lord to keep you? To keep you from bold, ugly, in his face kind of sins. We need to be kept. The reason you haven't done X, Y, or Z, it's not just your strength or your resolve or because you're doing other good things. It's because he's kept you. And if you're his, yes, he will keep keeping you. But we see over and over in God's word, keep praying for that. Keep praying that the Lord would deliver you from presumptuous sins and he would keep you from dominating sins. And then lastly, we see another D, that we should be drenched in God's ways. Look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Drenched is the word that came to mind as I thought about that because 
words and heart meditation seem to hint at the aim of the word being penetrated deeply and saturated widely. That's what we need. We don't need a surface experience with God's word. We need to go deep with God in it. And that takes time. That takes, like we said last week, unplugging sometimes. We need help. When G.K. Beale, a New Testament scholar, was here preaching for us not too long ago, he said that he thought there were three things that keep people today discouraged about their Bible reading and discourage them from their Bible reading. He said it's media immersion, something we talked about last week, busyness, we don't slow down, we talked about that last week, but he also said this one, we didn't talk about this, he said, we too much expect the sensational. We expect the sensational. We go to God's word and it says it's going to do all these things and we don't take that on faith. We want to see it with sight. And when it doesn't knock our socks off spiritually, it's hard to keep going day five, day six, day seven. No. Believe that the Bible is the word of God. Believe that it does what it says, even if it does it more slowly or more subtly than you think it should. It revives It turns, it makes wise, it rejoices, it enlightens. So embrace it for all that it is. Prize it and seek it and taste it and eat it and let it do its work. Martin Luther was asked how he affected the Protestant Reformation. How'd you do it, Luther? I simply taught and preached God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank beer with Philip, Philip Melanchthon, his partner, the word greatly worked. I did nothing. The word did it all. Let the word do its work. But you must open it. 